Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. This is True Crime Garage. And this is the case of Thomas Quick. Pluck your feathers. You cannot fly. I crush your eyes. You cannot see. I bite your tongue. You cannot eat. Die with me. I swallow you. I can feel you slowly slipping into death. I kill you. You kill me. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that last time his bicycle was stolen, he did a little web sleuthing and traced it all the way to the basement of the Alamo. He is the captain. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. And he still wants his bike back. Today we are drinking Necron 99 by one of my favorite breweries. Ladies and gentlemen, Necron 99 is from the brilliant minds at Three Floyds Brewing Company in Mm -hmm. Munster, Indiana. Garage grade, four and a quarter bottle caps out of five. 
We have featured three Floyds before, and we will again because they are one of the best. Mm-hmm. And Necron 99 is a fantastic Scotch-style IPA with plenty of fruit and a bitter finish. And I got 99 problems, but beer money is not one because of our great garage friends. First stop in beautiful parts unknown where every day is warm and sunny mm-hmm. with all work and no play. We have Lillian in Parts Unknown. Over in Three Floyds territory, we say hi to Amber in Indiana. Yo, Amber. Up in Alberta, Canada, our good, good buddy Rob Mack. Return of the man. Once again. In Minneapolis, we say thanks to Michael. Thank you, Michael. Also, we have Joshua in Kansas. And all the way in Brisbane, Australia, we have Jillian, who says the beer pour at the beginning of each show always makes her thirsty. (laughs) That always makes me want to take a leak. And right here in Ohio, we have Renee in Westerville. And last but not least, a big shout out to Carrie in Lancaster, Ohio. So thanks to everybody for filling up the fridge this week. And if you want to buy us around for next week's show, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button. If you haven't purchased your douche canoe shirt, well then, you know what you are. But you can do so right now at truecrimegarage.com. And then they will be shipped out in probably about a week. And if you like what you hear, if you love The Garage, please go to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. It really helps out the show. And that's enough of the business. Everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true True crime. crime. Thomas Quick has been convicted of unspeakable crimes. He has confessed to stabbings, stranglings, rape, and cannibalism. He confessed to tricking young Charles Zamanowitz into his car, driving the boy to the forest, and raping and killing him. He confessed to snatching up little Johann Asplin on his way to school, never to be seen again. Thomas told of the time that he attacked an unsuspecting married couple in the middle of the night. He told his doctors and then told investigators about the time he took a 24-year-old tourist captive because he liked the way that he looked. He shocked the courts when Thomas admitted to chopping up a little girl, but adding he had wished the victim would have been a boy. Quick confessed that while traveling in Norway, he killed a prostitute and kidnapped and murdered a 17-year-old girl. In all, Thomas Quick confessed to over 30 brutal murders, making him Sweden's most evil and worst serial killer. This man is better known by the name of Thomas Quick, but his birth name is Stuart Bergwall, and he was born in Sweden in the year 1950. Born into a large family, he had a couple of brothers and a couple of sisters. Mm-hmm. One of them was his twin sister. There were seven kids all together. For the sake of this episode, we will refer to him as Thomas Quick. Thomas became aware at the age of 14 that he is a homosexual, and you know most of us can imagine that in the 1960s, was a pretty tough time for a young man to be coming out. Back then in Sweden, being gay was considered, well, basically a a disorder. And, you know, people were treated with therapy for being homosexual. 
Thomas started getting into trouble at an early age. His grades were not very good, and he was getting in trouble for things like touching and grabbing classmates. Mm -hmm. He also became a drug addict at an early age. But Thomas started to feel like there was a place for him in this world. When he was still a teenager, he fell in love with an older man. This guy was like 15 years older than him. Mm. They had a relationship for a few months, and then the guy ends up committing suicide. And of course, this destroys Thomas, and he starts going, well, pretty hard at the drinking and with the drugs after this. And right before Thomas's 19th birthday, he would be high on some drugs, what he claims, and he'd be walking around the town of Fallen, and he would grab a, a kid by the neck. Yes, this was an 11-year-old boy. He grabbed him by the neck, and he took him into a garage. He told the boy to pull down his pants, and Thomas then touched the boy inappropriately. Two other such events occurred as well shortly after this, after which Thomas got himself into a lot of trouble regarding an incident at the Fallen Hospital. Where Thomas Quick was an employee of. Yeah, one night while he was working, he saw a nine-year-old boy sleeping in his hospital bed, and Thomas touched the boy and sexually Mm -hmm. assaulted the boy. The boy woke up and started screaming. Thomas put his hand over the boy's mouth to silence the screams. And it sounds like Thomas was choking the boy as well. Regardless, he tried to silence the boy so long and so forcibly that blood started coming from the boy's nose. At the sight of blood, Thomas fled, believing that he had killed the boy. He had, in fact, had not killed the boy. Mm -hmm. Because of this, Thomas was sent to live in a mental hospital. And for the next few years, Thomas was in and out of residential treatment of this hospital. So Thomas is a drug addict. Now, and it it seems to me like Thomas is heavy into the drugs. And when he is heavy into the drugs, he's out of control and he's very dangerous. Mm -hmm. When Thomas is clean and sober, it seems to be a whole different story. Well, it seems like he he's using the drugs as a way to deal with uh, his homosexuality. Yes. and, And other issues that he might be having. Right now, Thomas gets clean, you know, while he's receiving treatment. And he gets better. And this leads to outpatient treatment. Mm -hmm. However, after Thomas is being treated as an outpatient, he gets hooked on drugs again. And we start to see this out of control monster growing inside of him. When Thomas Quick is 23, he's in the town of Uppsala and he goes out clubbing. He went to a place that he considered to be a gay hangout. There he met a student named Leonard. The two of them hit it off pretty good. They spend the evening drinking and talking, and they end up going back to Leonard's place. Now, Thomas is still very much a drug addict at this time, and he was sniffing a solvent, Mm -hmm. and he would sniff this because it would make him hallucinate. So he starts off sniffing this stuff after a night of drinking, and I believe he's doing this unbeknownst to Leonard. Leonard goes to the bathroom, and when he comes out, Thomas starts attacking him. He has grabbed a knife that he found in the apartment. He's stabbing Leonard over and over again. Yeah, I believe he stabbed him 12 times. Thomas would later claim that he was in fact hallucinating quite a bit that night and that Thomas believed that he was defending himself, saying that when Leonard came out of the bathroom, he didn't see Leonard at all, but instead he saw a very large monster that he believed would attack and kill him. Mm-hmm. Leonard watched as Thomas watch, washed off the knife after stabbing him, trying to clean the knife of blood and fingerprints. Thomas stuffed the knife into his leather jacket and left Leonard there to die. 
Thomas had stabbed Leonard, like the captain said, 12 times, stabbing him in the liver, intestines, and the left lung. Police would later find the knife in a canal, and somehow Leonard survives this attack. Right. In 1990, Thomas Quick is still drinking a lot, and he's severely addicted to drugs. He's 40 years old by this time, and he's in trouble financially, this most likely because of the drug addiction, and he decides to try his hand at a little bank robbery. Thomas and an 18-year-old man go to the home of the bank manager. Thomas is wearing a Santa Claus mask, and the partner is wearing a ski mask. The two knock on the door at 5.45 a.m., and the manager answers the door to his home. They then force their way inside. Thomas is waving a knife at the man, and Thomas's partner has a gun pointed at the man. Mm -hmm. They then grab the man's wife and 10-year-old son and herd them into a bedroom. Thomas's partner takes the bank manager to the bank where he's going to take money from the safe. And as an insurance policy, Thomas is going to stay behind at the manager's home, basically taking the wife and the kid hostage. While the man and Thomas's partner were gone, Thomas yelled and screamed, waving his knife at the woman and her son. He kicked over furniture. He stabbed the bed and stabbed the walls several times. He had a broad face with a little round belly. He shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. Well, he's being very violent, and he's threatening both of them with his knife. Mm -hmm. He also tells the woman and her son that he is infected with the AIDS virus, and he only has a very short time to live, so it really doesn't matter to him if the two lived or died that day. It wouldn't bother him one bit. He's got nothing else going. Nothing to live for. Nothing to lose. Of course. Well, right. Nothing. Yeah, that's better. Of course, Thomas... This is not a really well-thought-out plan. Uh, It it really kind of just spirals out of control. And he's actually caught later that day for this crime. And he ends up going to a psychiatric hospital, a place called Seder. Now, I believe this time that it's going to be quite different for Thomas, though, because this place is described pretty much as a place that is somewhere between a hospital and a prison. So it sounds to me like this is a little more hardcore and deservingly so for Thomas. Now at Seder, he is going to undergo a much different type of therapy and treatment than he has participated in before. Mm -hmm. It sounds like this type of therapy involves a lot of drugs and a lot of lengthy therapy sessions. It is here at Seder that he would change his name from Stur Bergwall to Thomas Quick. And there is some reasoning behind the name Thomas Quick. Quick is his mother's family name, and Thomas is... maiden name. And Thomas, the name Thomas comes from someone that we have not talked about yet, but Thomas was the name of Thomas Quick's first victim, a 14-year-old boy whose bloody, lifeless body was found in a shed with his pants partially removed. And Thomas Quick was actually 14 at the time of this murder, and he didn't confess to it till years later, Mm -hmm. but because Sweden has a statute of limitations that he couldn't actually be charged for this murder. Right. He was never charged or convicted of, of this actual crime. And as we know that in the United States, there is no statute of right. limitations on murder. We're going to hold you States. accountable for the rest of your life. And it seems like the doctors or the, the treatment that he was receiving, it was kind of like this cutting edge idea. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that you have probably these repressed memories or these repressed, you know, a, a repressed memory of you seeing a crime. And so if we can open up this repressed memory, that it would also open up this repressed 
uh, time where you actually committed a crime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, this violent behavior that you would repress some of these memories and later, due to the treatment, be able to recall some of these acts that you've committed or witnessed before. Mm-hmm. Now, it's during this therapy and treatment that Thomas Quick starts to open up and he's offering a confession of sorts. In June of 1992, he tells one of the caregivers at the psychiatric hospital that he has done something very serious. Right. And it's almost like he's going to be playing a game. He doesn't come right out and say it. Uh, I can't figure out if he was just reluctant to say it and wanted someone else to say the words. Uh, But first, it's like he wants the caregiver to guess what he's about to tell her, Mm. saying that he would give her a clue and the clue is M-U. Yeah, so he's basically trying to confess to a murder. Yes, he's he's saying that he possibly has committed a murder, and he might be willing to confess this to his doctors. Mm-hmm. Well, after doing so, the, the doctors at Seder, they get some investigators involved because now they have a crime to report. And once the investigators sit down with Thomas Quick, they're able to go through some crimes that he's saying that he has committed. Right, but before this actually takes place, because he says, I, w- I want to talk about a murder that happened, they're actually going to start giving him a lot more attention. Mm-hmm. They're actually He's actually going to see- receive more therapy treatments uh, to have him open up his mind so he can recall these events. Mm-hmm. They, they want to make him comfortable so he can explore and confess these items to them. Mm-hmm. Eventually, this, this investigation will lead to the trial process. And the trial started in 1994. This was for the murder of a 15-year-old boy named Charles Zamanowitz. Thomas explained how he and a friend were looking for a boy in November of 1976 when they saw Charles walking along the road late one evening, mm-hmm. visibly distressed and alone. Thomas pulled over to offer the boy a ride home. Charles accepted the ride. During the ride, Thomas starts touching and feeling Charles's hands and body. He convinces Charles to fool around with him. So they stopped off and parked. Thomas's friend who was driving, and now that they are parked, well, he wanted to join in. But then Thomas Quick became angered at something that Charles had said, and he put his hands around Charles's neck, and he choked the boy until he was dead. Afterward, Quick played further sexual games with the dead body, Then the two of them carried the body into the forest. Quick had a knife and a saw. Quick is going to use this saw to cut up the different body parts. Reason being, as his doctors would claim at trial, his sexuality was actually driven by this. That each body part symbolized a different value system. It seems to me, Captain, like they're trying to apply logic to complete craziness here. You know, stating that basically... He knew that Thomas Quick knew before he started cutting up the body that he what parts he wanted to remove, maybe what parts he wanted to take with him. Um, at the trial, Thomas Quick described the way that the body uh, seemed to have it groaned as he cut it up. Mm. He also described what he called a sweet odor that was released from the body as he was cutting it up. He explained how he cut off parts of the body and took a leg and a hand with him and put them in a gray plastic bag and then covered the rest of the body with debris and moss. Yeah, I'm sure that's this beautiful smell. I mean, it smells as good as Nickelback. After the murder, a short time later, the accomplice came to Thomas Quick 
And he said that because of his participation in Charles's murder and the dumping of the body, that he was having a lot of suicidal thoughts. Now, Thomas he says should. that he advised his friend that he should follow through with these thoughts, and the friend ultimately committed suicide. Yeah, that, I, I think that's reasonable. Well, and that this is Thomas Quick's way of explaining why he, he tells the story of him being with a friend. They abduct this boy. They do terrible things to him. And now all of a sudden, this, this friend is nowhere to be found. How about this one? Kill yourself before you do something like that. This was the first confession, but it would not be the last. And same with the murder trials as well. There were going to be many more confessions and several more murder trials. Thomas went to trial again, but this time he was facing charges for a double murder. This is for a husband and wife named Marinus and Jannie Stegenhaus. Now, they were tourists, and they were murdered at a secluded lakeside campsite right. in 1984. Thomas Quick explained how he had snuck up to the tent very quietly, and then in a frenzied attack, he stabbed the husband through the tent canvas. And as the man lie there bleeding... Thomas then went inside the tent. He gave a detailed confession as to what took place from there, but we don't need to go through all of the details of this horrific attack. Well, not only did they do confessions, but they would always take him to the scenes as well. And they'd actually set up like a tent mm -hmm. and then have him reenact it. Yeah. And he'd make all these noises where he'd, you know, he'd start stabbing, but the whole time he'd stab him, he's going. Arr, arr, arr. He's, he like, sounds, he sounds like a, some kind of animal, you know, when, when this mm, is going on. Yeah. But he's he also, reliving it. Right. He also acts like he's in this like trance like state, like because they were able to uh, take these, these thoughts that were repressed and they bring them to the surface because of that. He, it puts them in a trance like state. Mm -hmm. It's very dramatic. Mm -hmm. All in all, due to his confession and the forensic evidence, it is known that he stabbed the husband 25 times and the wife after which he had stabbed 20 times. This appears simply to be a crime of opportunity to me. He, he happened upon the two and attacked them. They didn't even know what was happening until it was too late. Right. Thomas stated that this have was... Have fun camping this weekend. Well, this was a very, very much a psychological thing for him, that in some way he was attacking his own parents, and that killing that married couple, it was like he was killing his parents, who he you know, ultimately blamed for a very nasty childhood. So the fourth crime that he would be convicted of, that Thomas Quick would also confess to, would be a crime that took place in 1988. This was for the murder of 24-year-old Israeli student Yenin Levy, who was visiting family and sightseeing. Thomas Quick told how he kidnapped Levy at a train station and took him to a vacant home. Once there, Levy tried to escape and made it out of the house and into the yard, but Quick soon caught up to the man, recaptured him, and killed him there in the home. Which is surprising because, you know, Thomas Quick just looks like a bag of skin, you mm -hmm. know, no muscles. And Yenin was 24, so you'd think that he mm -hmm. would be able to outrun, you know, this. He basically looks just like a like a bag of skin, you know, filled with poop. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he doesn't look strong. He's very not strong or athletic looking by any means. No, he looks very soft. The, first, the fifth murder that Thomas Quick would be convicted of was for the murder of a nine-year-old Norwegian girl. Her name is Therese Johannesson. And this took place in 1988 as well. 
Right. Thomas Quick described how he had seen the girl somewhere near her home. Mm-hmm. Now, the day that he saw her, it was raining very hard, and she had taken cover while she was waiting for the downpour to finish. Quick pulled over and engaged the girl in light conversation before grabbing her and taking her down a slope to a secluded area. Is this the girl that he actually assumed at first was a, a, a young boy? I think so, yes. Uh, he... he then smashed her head against a rock until she was unconscious. He reported that her last words were her crying out for her mother. He later recalled how he was extremely disappointed after taking her body back to the car because she turned out to be a girl and not a boy. After dismembering her, he then hid different body parts in different places around the area. He said that he returned to where he had buried these parts the following year and he Mm -hmm. burned the remains. And at one of the sites, he identified what investigators found to be a a bone fragment, and it was sent off for analysis. Now, I do want to specify here that this was an extremely small piece that they found, and it was too old or too degraded Mm -hmm. uh, for any type of DNA analysis. For the sixth and seventh murders he would be tried for? He would be tried for both of those at the same time. Both of these murders, just like the last one that we discussed, took place in Norway. Uh, The first was for a 23-year-old female prostitute named Gray Storvik, and this took place in 1985. He said that he he had basically taken her captive, and he forced her to strip, he tortured her, and then he described how she vomited as he beat her. He basically beat her to death. Mm. The seventh murder was that of 17-year-old Trine Jensen, who Thomas Quick killed in 1981. He stated that he violently strangled her with a strap from her handbag. Mm -hmm. His last murder conviction was for a very famous case and one of the first murders that Thomas had actually confessed to. This is for the murder of an 11-year-old boy named Johann Asplund, which took place in 1980. Mm-hmm. Johan had disappeared November 7th, 1980, in Sonsville, Sweden. He was supposed to be having a friend stay the evening with him that night at his parents' house. The boy's friend arrived at the home before Johan did. Yeah. And the boy was told that Johan had not yet returned from school, so that the boy should run down and go back to the school and meet up with him, and the two could walk back to the home together. And this was a hugely popular case in Sweden. Mm-hmm. This would be very similar to a case that we had here, not as far as the details, but as far as the popularity of the case, our case here being um, the Adam Walsh case. The boy then, after being instructed to go find his friend and walk home with him, well, he comes back to the home and he says that he had learned that Johan had not actually gone to school that day. Mm. Uh, The disappearance of this boy very quickly was televised. And many people came out to lend their time to look for the boy. Hundreds of people searched for him, and he was not found. Uh, Over 10 years later, Thomas Quick then confessed to doctors and then to investigators that he had saw the little boy on his way to school that November morning. Thomas Quick spoke to the boy, Mm -hmm. saying that he had hit a cat with his car and asked if the boy could help him out. The boy agreed to help Quick. And when Johan bent over to look under the car for the cat, Quick grabbed the boy by the hair and he smashed his head into the car. He then pulled him inside of the vehicle. He drove the boy to the countryside 
where he sexually assaulted him and then strangled him. Quick cut up the body, and he buried some of the internal organs there on the countryside, but he put the hands on the, on the car's front seat and the head and the legs in a plastic bag, and then the remains of the torso in another bag. Mm-hmm. He then disposed of one hand along the roadside as he drove away. He buried the other hand in a stream. He tossed it in a stream. Mm. He kept the legs in his attic for a while, and he states that some of the other parts of the boy, he ate them. All right. Well, he these are the murders that he was convicted of. There were eight of them. He went to trial six times to be tried for eight total murders. Right. Now, the thing here is he did confess to many more. He confessed to over 30 murders. Some of those were not brought to trial because of the statute of limitations. Others, they could not verify that he had actually committed the murders. Now, in these cases that we just discussed here, now, I apologize for the graphic details and the graphic nature of some of those confessions, but these were statements that were taken from... It is a true crime show. Yeah, these are statements that were taken from these trials. Um, and w- I did summarize them quite a bit to leave out some of, some of the other stuff that, uh-huh. that just wasn't necessary. But the thing here is not only do we see a guy confessing time and time again to, to different murders and keep in mind, these are murders. Some of these are taking place in other countries and he's confessed these to his doctors and then he goes forward and confesses them to the investigators and to the police. Right, afterwards. and then sometimes reenacting them. Exactly. Yeah. Like you had said, they take him out to the scene. They they kind of restructure everything. You know, we saw the one the one set where they built the tent. Right. And uh, he's he describing starts, how he's stabbing. the. T- it looks like a man just standing next to a tent, stabbing it. Right, he and, starts grunting. And you learn that inside there, there are people sleeping. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing here is, we see these multiple confessions, uh, eight convictions, but on top of that, not only is he confessing to these crimes, but he's confessing the, to them in detail. You know, he's not saying, oh, I went out and I grabbed somebody, Billy Bob, you know, just making up some random name. The captain. And yeah. In, in the middle of nowhere, I don't know where I was Parts unknown. and I don't know what day it was or, or what year it was. Show comes out on Tuesday. But I killed these people here and these people there. No, we're seeing detailed confessions where he's stating, you know, I picked up this specific person mm-hmm. and this is how I killed them. I got them into my vehicle. I took them elsewhere and I, and I did what I wanted with them. Now, the other thing though, too, here, captain, we also see a victimology that is clearly all over the map. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it sounds to me like his ideal victim would be like a teenage boy or a younger boy. Uh, but right. he doesn't seem to be able to control himself at all. And, and he, he's killing adults He's killing, you know, women, girls, boys. It's the victimology is really all over the map. And he, because of these confessions and because of these eight murders, he becomes a bit of a a legend in Sweden. You know, they they refer to him as Sweden's Hannibal Lecter. You know, right. he's he's their most evil. He's their he's, worst serial killer right. that the country has ever seen. You know, and, and the thing here too is some almost refer to him as the first serial killer. Like, mm-hmm. like his crimes are so there's such a large number of them and they're so heinous that if there were any other serial killers, they almost forgot about everybody except for the very evil Thomas quick.
The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. 
Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious, from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we're back. Cheers, mates. Cheers. Now, I'll tell you what, Captain. We have to talk about the therapy and the treatment that Thomas Quick was receiving at Seder. Mm -hmm. And we touched upon it a little bit in the first half. And unfortunately, we had to go through all the gruesome details of some of the murders that he confessed to, but these were ones that he was actually convicted of. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing here is, Captain, I don't want anybody to get the wild idea that, that this is our wheelhouse that we fully understand this type of treatment that he was receiving. But the basic thought that I pulled away from what it was, how it was presented to me was that because he was in this psychiatric hospital, because he had, you know, he was convicted of violent crimes. You know, we saw the attack on the nine year old boy that took place at the hospital where he worked. Right. We saw the, the stabbing of the, young man that he met at the, at the bar. I mean, that's basically two attempted murders. Yes. Very, very violent attacks. Uh, in the first one you could Mm -hmm. argue was a, you know, it was a sexual violent attack as well. Mm -hmm. So the way that he's going to be treated is they're going to be treating him for his sexual violence, uh, that he's in for. Right. And because of this, they might have some preconceived notions that he might, he might be guilty of some other, events that that they are unaware of. You know, if he was capable of stabbing a man 12 times, if he was capable of almost strangling a a young boy to death, who knows what else this this person could have done. Yeah. So they, once they start treating him Mm -hmm. and he starts coming forward with this idea that he may have possibly murdered somebody and he wants to talk about that. Well, it's shortly after this, that it seems like the floodgates just open wide up and he, and he, and now he's, he said, you know, I've, I've committed over 30 murders. Mm-hmm. I've been doing this since I was about, since I was a teenager, I've been killing people. And mind you, for a good portion of his adult life, 
he's in these he's in this hospital mm-hmm. you know so we're so we're talking about a, a, a specific window here where he would have had to have killed over 30 people in several different countries the way that i understand this therapy to be is that once they come up with these confessions and they learn that he has done these terrible things you know we we talk about he's confessed to stabbing people to choking people to death, strangling them, Mm -hmm. raping, and even eating some parts of some of his victims. Uh They start to say that, you know what, this violent behavior, this sexual, this way that his sexuality and violence has all gotten mixed up together must have stemmed from things that happened in his childhood. Mm -hmm. Now I would say there's probably some validity there. We have heard many serial killers come out and say that, you know, they, they have sexual fantasies and they all involve violence right. that, that some of them can't seem to achieve gratification without the violence in those sexual acts. And we even hear people talk about, you know, from a very young age that they had sexual fantasies that involved violence. Well, what is the root of that is what they're going to look for. Where did that come from? Why is this guy an adult and he's, he's strangling people, he's killing people and he's sexually assaulting them as well. Well, you're right. And their their theory is basically that this is something that was learned or seen. They mm-hmm. weren't just born with this, you know, uh, appetite for a, a violent sexual appetite, I guess, right? Right. But that they saw something in their childhood. Maybe they saw their mother being raped. And so, therefore, by seeing that event, it caused them to want to go out and rape others. So, in some ways, it would be a learned behavior. Right. Uh, or or in a way, they're also reenacting this trauma. So that's basically what it was, is that because there was some kind of trauma that they repressed that image, they repressed that vision and that memory and all that stuff. And that we have to do this type of therapy to make them be able to relive that trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because until they can relive it, well, there's no way to learn from it, overcome it and become a better person. Mm-hmm. And the thing here is we, we kind of touched upon it a little bit in the first half, right? you know, where Thomas quick explains that he believes that the, the reason for the double murder at the campsite where he, where he stabbed the husband and wife to death, mm-hmm. that he believed that it was because of, he had a nasty childhood growing up and that in some way he was almost killing his own father and his own mother that that night at the campsite right claiming that they're very abusive exactly so now we should be clear here though because these confessions you know it took it took lots of therapy lots of sessions to get these confessions to come out and what ends up being presented about his childhood takes quite an extensive amount of time to come forward as well but with the help of the doctors um, he is able to to basically retell a, a traumatic event that happened in his childhood. Mm-hmm. And this is supposed to explain to us why he is capable of these things as a teenager and as an adult. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I'm going to apologize in advance as we try to talk about this event. Right, right, but it is a true crime show, so... It's a true crime show. The first half was pretty gruesome. This next few minutes might be even more gruesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but but Thomas Quick starts to describe abuse that's happening at the hands of his parents 
from a very young age. And there is one extremely horrific event uh, that, that he that he brings forward that is extremely traumatic. And it goes something like this. It, he, We don't know at what age. I don't know that they were able to specifically say what mm-hmm. age this occurred. But young, like six years old or so. He would have been pretty young at the time. And apparently his father was abusing him, not just physically, um, but sexually as well. Mm-hmm. And sodomizing them. During this event, he is being raped by his father. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, um, his mother goes into acute labor. Well, yeah. So he, he is being raped by his father and the mother comes in and she is pregnant at the time. And so when she sees this event taking place, it's the shock of seeing, you know, her husband raping her son that brings her into labor. Mm-hmm. And this is a violent rape as well. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, and the thing here is sends her into labor way, you know, way early in the pregnancy. Um, and the baby is, I, I don't believe the baby is alive. Right. Uh, Maybe a stillborn or. Yeah. But, but the baby is still attached to the mother. Um, right. And what then happens is that the mother freaking out because of this situation and, and who knows what else, uh, starts to abuse Thomas as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is physical abuse, you know, violently hurting him as well as the father at the same time. Mm-hmm. And they, the two parents react to the birth of this, this baby, mm-hmm. uh, Simon. Yes. They, they give the name, Thomas gives the name of Simon, uh, that would have been his brother. Um, they basically start abusing the baby immediately after the birth, uh-huh. um, to the point of dismemberment. Um, and during the course of this, they are, um, mm, just say it. Okay. Uh, they, they, the parents may have been consuming parts of the baby and forcing Thomas to consume parts of the baby right, as and well. When he says consume, he means eat. And, and then the, you know, let's just say what they're, what it is. I mean, you know, he's Thomas is now making these crazy allegations about his family members mm. and mind you that he has other, he has another six siblings. Correct. Yeah. And when this event is over, what happens is the father is going to dispose of, of Simon who was just born. Right. And what he's going to do is make Thomas go with him. They, they bundle up the baby into newspapers and they head out to the woods and they bury the uh, the fetus into, they bury the baby into the woods. Yes. Yeah, they wrap the baby up in, in newspapers, and then they bury the baby at a place called Framby Point. Right, and so then the doctors are going to then start concluding, well, a lot of these crimes that he's confessed to, they, they took place in the woods. Mm-hmm. So that would be the link there. Uh, any of the pedophilia stuff, or the sexual fantasies towards children would be based off of the fact that he was raped by his father. Yes. And then any of the dismemberments would have been the dismemberment of Simon. Any of the cannibalism would be because of the parents eating parts of Simon or that he ate parts of Simon. He was forced to. Yes. And yeah. these, these are the connections they're drawing. Now, mind you, what the whole time these investigations were happening, 
they're trying to explain this idea that all these thoughts are repressed memories. Now, a lot of this doesn't make sense as far as the true crime listeners will go because, you know, one thing that I I don't believe, but that's just because I have a horrible memory. So if you ask me what happened, if you ask me what case we covered three weeks ago, I couldn't tell you. Boys on the track. Um, (laughs) But... But most what we've seen through time and through the cases that we've done a lot of research on, it seems like these serial killers, maybe they can't remember a lot of stuff that was going on that year, mm-hmm. but they could tell you about that day and and, and and in a lot of details. Yeah. So what you know, so what these doctors are saying and what these therapists are saying was, well, this is a whole different case. And that this guy, Thomas Quick, is actually he's repressing all these memories because he had this early childhood trauma that he repressed, so he's repressing all the murders. Mm-hmm. But uh, so when he's telling you this stuff and he's confessing to s- some of this stuff, some of the details are wrong. Right. Right, and so the, now the investigators are going, well, uh, hey, doc, this doesn't line up. Mm-hmm. And the doctors are saying, well, look, it's repressed. It's a repressed memory. It's all coming back to him. Right. It's so, all coming back to Thomas at the same time that he's trying to tell you and walk you through what he done. You know, that yeah. this this is this is a person that's been traumatized over a lifetime. And because mm-hmm. of this trauma has repressed any horrific memory that he may have. And whether it's something he's done or whether it's something he's witnessed, he's tucked those memories mm-hmm. away even from himself. And now we are pulling those forward. We're bringing them to light. And he's able to tell us things that he has done and things that he has witnessed in his lifetime. Right. And so what we have to do, this is what the doctors say. What we have to do is these confessions are going to be a little different. We can't just sit down with Thomas and have him tell us all the details and expect for them to be right. We're going to have to have a confession. You're going to have to talk to him. You might have to interrogate him. Then we're going to have to go back to therapy. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have to try to get some of the more of the details out. Yes. Because not only are these memories unclear to him, to Thomas Quick, mm-hmm. but there are so many of them that they could be muddled together. And the details of such could be, you know, all mixed up into one another. And we're going to have to really kind of pull these pull these apart and take what what you know, what facts you know, investigator, mm-hmm. about the case and what Thomas is relearning and what he is remembering about himself and about his crimes. And we're going to have to kind of, we might have to fuse them together in a way Mm -hmm. uh, because do the best we can, because we, we know he's a violent offender and we know that he's, he's having these confessions and we know that he's, he's, he's confessing to people that we know have been murdered that have either disappeared Mm -hmm. or they have been murdered. Now, mind you, the whole time Thomas Quick is not in a prison. He's in this mental facility. And, uh, you know, he becomes a star patient. He becomes a person of interest. Yes. He becomes somebody that they they, want to talk to on a daily. Oh, and by the way, you get some perks. Oh, you're murdering people? You murdered some people and now now you're telling us about it? Oh, well, here's extra room. Now you got your room. Now you got a (laughs) den. Oh, you need the internet? To do some research, to maybe jog your memory, we'll get you the internet. Yeah, where most of the patients would have had a, a, a smaller room. Um, and like the captain said, it's not a prison. It's it's a mm-hmm. it's a psychiatric hospital. Um, it has been described by some of the patients as 
partly a prison, partly a hospital. I, it it, it right. looks to me like there is some form of lockdown, you know, that they're not just roaming free out, out in the public uh, and then coming back at night. No, they're, mm-hmm. they're confined to this property. Um, but like the captain said, you know, these, these perks come in in different ways and this is not perks for murdering people. We're not rewarding you for murdering people. However, what we are doing we're going to reward you for really working hard at this treatment and really focusing on this and, and bringing these things to light. Uh, we're going to reward you because you're working so hard on your therapy and you're working well with this treatment. Right. And the whole time through this too, Thomas is, is very heavily medicated, uh, taking medicine as much as like eight to 10 times a day. Mm -hmm. For years, Thomas quick was confessing to these murders and between Mm -hmm. the years of 1994 in 2001, Thomas Quick was convicted of eight of these murders. Now, eight, eight of the 30. Correct. Now, shortly after this, Thomas Quick goes silent. He decides one day that he's no longer going to work with the investigators. Uh, he's no longer going to help them solve their crimes, their cases that they're working on. Mm-hmm. He's not even really open to the same form of treatment and therapy that he's been receiving for years at the hospital. He, he basically shuts down, um, and he, he has stopped confessing to murder and he stopped cooperating with the doctors at Seder, right? The doctors and law enforcement. And during this time, it's, it's around the same time that he now remember Thomas quick was not his birth name. It was a name that he gave himself once he started receiving treatment. And it's about the same time that he decides he wants to return to his birth name. He no longer wants to be referred to as Thomas, Thomas quick. Yeah. And now he wants to be referred to as Batman. It's during this time as well that he's going to start severely backing off of this medication that he's taking. Well, he's probably on a bunch of stuff. He shouldn't be on. It's during this time that Thomas quick, he sees a documentary. Now this is very interesting here, captain, because it has a lot to do with, with his life. Mm -hmm. He he's watching this documentary on confessions and it's murder confessions. That's why. That's basically why do people confess to crimes? To crimes that they have not committed. Mm-hmm. And the the curious thing here is he's intrigued by this documentary, and the documentarian reaches out to Thomas Quick. He had rev- reviewed Thomas's story and watched some of the trials, mm-hmm. and he was aware of Thomas, and he wanted to speak with him. And he wanted to find out more about Thomas's cases and his confessions and his memories. And one of the things that he actually did was they took all the confessions and they took all the evidence and they actually gave it to a profiler. Yes. Now, this profiler reviewed all of the statements, all of the documents, Mm -hmm. and he didn't believe in all of his experience. He did not believe that they actually had something there that he felt like they were on the wrong track that this guy, Thomas Quick, may not have committed any of these crimes, any of the crimes, let alone all of them. And it's through this documentarian who reaches out to Thomas Quick. And Thomas, is a, he's not so quick to respond to, to him is what it sounds like to me. But they end up talking and they end up working together. And it's through this correspondence that we learn, what, Captain, that these confessions a bunch of horse shit. They're a bunch of horse shit. Right. So where do we go from here? Well, 
Thomas starts by, and again, for the sake of it, even though he went back to his original name, we're going to keep calling him Thomas for the sake of the show. But So Thomas reaches out to his siblings. Uh, pretty interesting way to reach out to him. He, he takes postcards, and he writes one word on it, sends it to all of them, and it just says, sorry. Yeah, and I think you know the, the reason why this is so heavy here is he didn't have a good relationship with any of his brothers or sisters. It, it seems like once he was locked up, and especially after these confessions started, right. that they all just believed their brother to be a very evil person that they well, didn't want. Well, not actually true. A lot of them actually just believed that he was lying about all this stuff. Uh, and and then some of the, the ones that actually believed that he was lying because he was confessing to crimes where they said, well, he wasn't in Norway at that mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm. So he couldn't have done that. And I think what really got the siblings was when he started, you know, making allegations saying that, you know, my, my father raped me, mm-hmm. that uh, they had this unborn baby and they, and they ate parts of the baby. Right. You know I mean, we're talking about some pretty crazy claims here. But whether they believed him or not, the thing here is though he had some pretty nasty interactions with these with with his siblings while he was confessing to these different crimes right you know and and so even if they believed him or or, or not he was pushing them away they were already at arm's length he right. he was pushing them further away they didn't have a great relationship when he finally reached out to them apologizing with by just mm-hmm. simply saying sorry right so he's going to get a new lawyer because now he's you know, he's in this mental facility. He's not technically in a prison, mm-hmm. uh, but he's going to be spending the rest of his life there. But now that he didn't do these crimes, I mean, he did do crimes, right? Right. He, we we do know that he tried to uh, strangle a boy. He was he was in there for good reason, right? So what what we do know for sure is that he did try to strangle a boy at his work, mm-hmm. almost killed him. And what we do know for sure was that that you know when he went to the gay club and they went back. Uh, when he was huffing, whatever he was huffing, stabs a guy 12 times, left him for dead. So there's two accounts of attempted murder. Mm-hmm. So it's not like we're saying, Thomas, oh, poor Thomas, quick. No, you're, you're a piece of shit before you went in there. Well, and the thing here is, though, regarding the lawyer, you know, he's with, with these murders, he's going to be granted appeals. And it's when he changes his lawyer that through the appeal process that the new lawyer is able to point out that in most of these cases, I mean, I'm looking at all eight of them right here and it, it it's basically there's little to no forensic evidence in any of these cases. Right. All they had was his confession. In some of these cases, they never found the, the person that was believed to have been killed. Uh, in the, in the one situation, remember where we talked about them finding a very small bone fragment that could, it was so small and degraded that it couldn't be tested for DNA. Right. It was later determined that that was not even a bone fragment, uh, that they were mistaken. Um, and in some of these other situations, you're exactly right with what you said about the, his siblings where they, the new lawyer was able to show that Thomas quick was not even in the area when, mm-hmm. where this person was killed that he had a solid alibi for this time. And furthermore, when they really started digging into the confessions themselves and reviewing them at, at a whole, rather than just what he's stating at trial, they learned that many times he got details. He didn't just not know them. He got them extremely wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, and in one case, the, the, the girl was beat to death 
with with what was believed to be a wooden club. Well, he had guessed several different weapons before arriving to that conclusion. It's the power of suggestion. And we see it with the doctors and we're seeing it again with the investigators. And the thing here in the beginning, he... He didn't even know that the girl was beat to death. He thought that, she, that, that it was a, a knife or an axe that had, had committed the murder. Well, a lot of this is just a perfect storm. You know, it, it was these doctors that they believed they knew uh, this cutting edge and, and, and we're going to uncover these traumas and therefore we're going to be able to, you know, know why these things take place and we're going to be able to spot this. Mm-hmm. And so when he starts confessing to these crimes and they're not lining up, like I said, as the law enforcement, they're going, well, wait a second, doc, this, this stuff don't line up. Right. Mm-hmm. But then the doc's saying, well, but there's a reason for that. So again, I, you, there's a part of you that's like, who the hell do you blame? You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I think it's everybody. First of yeah. all, the, the, the doctors shouldn't have been so naive. they, we see this all the time when with mental health and I I understand again I'm not a, I'm not a doctor I'm a captain <laughs> but but you see this all the time where they have to try something first to see if it works yep and sometimes that you know so you got this guy that has issues this Thomas Quick has issues first of all I believe that he has uh, pedophilia thoughts yes those don't go away right so th- those are there uh, he tried to kill a guy. Now he's in this mental facility. He's hopped up on some drugs, and he's 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 lonely. I mean, yeah. he even states so he what he said was I was a very lonely person when it all started. I was in a place, uh, you know, where violent criminals, and that 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 he noticed that the worse and the more violent and the serious the crimes, that the more that the physicians would take notice. And so there's a part of me that, hey, look, I'm sorry you're lonely, but you confess to these crimes, and there's a bunch of problems with this. A whole lot of problems. First problem is that you sat in the courtroom, and these families had to listen to this bullshit that you were saying, and they, they had to relive this traumatic experience for them that you're just, one, just making up. And then on top of that, so they do get some closure at some point. But then years later, when you come out and just go, eh, just kidding. Right. Then they then they relive the horror again. And the fact that, you know, the statute of limitations is up. So there, there's a bunch of these crimes that law enforcement could have kept working. But they thought the case was closed because you confessed to it. Right. Yeah, the the thing here is regarding the family members, it's it's unimaginable that they had to sit through a trial and not only hear these horrible things that he says he did to their loved one, mm-hmm. but then they're not even true. I mean, he right. completely fabricated these events and they unnecessarily had to sit through something and hear that and lived with that in their minds and in their memories and in their hearts for years and years and years until he says, well, I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and furthermore, they're never going to solve the the case of your murdered loved one because I, I took the blame and I got rewarded for it. And mm-hmm. on top of that, now 
there's no there's nobody to investigate this case now because of, because the statute of limitations has passed. Um, well, it's, and it's it, it's it's suffering beyond belief. Well, and to be clear to the listeners, so then what happens is once they once they actually get the lawyer and they retry all this stuff, all all those charges are dropped, mm-hmm. and and Thomas then goes out to the public and actually one of his brothers, which I feel is it's very kind of his brother to say, well, you know, you are my brother. You did all this stuff and I don't know why you did it, yeah. you know, but, uh, you know, we can try to rebuild a relationship and they kind of do rebuild a relationship. My question is, is why wasn't he charged for lying under oath? Why isn't he charged, you know, for something for that, you know, yeah, yeah, wasting yeah. people's time, um, hurting family members for no reason. Yeah. We want, we want to be very clear here. we, you know, there might be some people out there that are of the mindset that that Thomas Quick is some kind of victim in this whole thing. Um, I I can't help it, Captain, but I don't feel any pity towards him. Um, well, no, look, here's here's the thing that I, I, you know I I can think of. You know, like we said, you know, to to be at a really young age and to discover that you are you know homosexual. In a time where that's not not well a, received or welcomed at all, not only a time but also the place, mm-hmm. and I could not even imagine what that must feel like. Right, and I think because he didn't know how to handle that, and society wasn't accept accepting of that, which they should be and should have been, that he turned to drug use to try to combat these feelings that he was having or, or try to, I think to, to, to try to cope with it, self-medicate. Mm-hmm. And that turned into, again, that him attacking that boy is not a homosexual activity. No, that's pedophilia. Yes. That, and you can lock that guy up or you can, put gasoline on him and light that motherfucker on fire. I don't give a shit. Well, you know? re- remember the, the young man, uh, that he stabbed 12 times, you know, yeah. th- this, this is now a, a very old man as well as Thomas quick is, but he's, he's extremely angry that Thomas quick is out and walking around. You know, he, he says, you know, this guy, he ruined my life. He stabbed me 12 times. Tried to kill me. He tried to kill me. He hit organs inside my body with a knife. Mm. He left me there for dead. He's physically changed me forever. And now he's out walking around. I, the thing is, I, I, this is such a tough case though, captain, because you know, you, you, you kind of sit on the fence and you wonder, you know, did, would Thomas quick, would he have eventually went on to kill? I, I think he was going that route. It, yeah, I think he was going that route. If he would have stayed on the drugs and the drinking and everything, it looked to me like this was going to happen, that he might have potentially turned into the monster that he claimed to be. Well, I, well furthermore, turned into the monster. I think he already was yeah. that monster. I mean, when you look, you any attack on a child, like I said, douse that motherfucker in gasoline. I don't give a shit, you know? got better things to do with my life um those people shouldn't exist to me so anyways but but yeah so he has these things and they let him go and maybe through some of the therapy he's really you know maybe he's somewhat rehabilitated i guess 
But uh, and I and the tough thing for us here, you know, we we normally do you know cases in the states. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to understand what their laws are and why this took place. But it's like, and I and I and I'm all for the idea that some people just have some mental issues, and so that needs to be there. There needs to be that separation where okay yeah this was a crime but this was a crime just due to mental illness there you go Mm -hmm. you go to the hospital the secure hospital uh this one was because you're just a piece of shit you go to prison Mm -hmm. i I, look i understand that but uh but some of their stuff with sweden i don't understand so it's kind of hard to comment on it well and it's also pointing out the fact that we we have seen time and time again in these different cases the ramifications of false confessions. And this is kind of seeing it from a different angle under a different light, uh, the way that it can affect people. All right. Well, but what are your final thoughts on this matter? Oh, I think we have a situation here where we have a guy that, um, you know, people can, people falsely confess to things for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's because you have an over aggressive investigator who's interrogating you and you're in a high stress situation and you're trying to relieve yourself of some of the stress. Some people confess for that reason for the, for here we see, I believe somebody that was seeking reward Mm -hmm. and almost seeking to be a part of something or be somebody or be somebody. You're exactly right. I don't know that he was seeking fame. You know, sometimes people will confess to famous crimes because they want to be famous. Well, I think he enjoyed some of that as it was happening. Some of the notoriety that came along with it. But I Mm -hmm. think ultimately he, I, I think we have a person that was on a bad road with, with drugs and alcohol and it was leading him to some extremely violent, um, and illegal behavior. And I think that it could have progressed to murder at some point had he not been locked up and, and started mm-hmm. receiving treatment. The problem is that during this treatment, he starts confessing to things that he didn't do. Why? You know, at the, at the same time when he's confessing, think about what's going on in the world. Silence of the Lambs was coming out. Jeffrey Dahmer was, was in the news constantly. Yeah, well, one, you know, one of the confessions, the one of the things that he said he did to one of the victims was actually something he stole from American Psycho. Yes. He's, he's reading about this stuff and a lot of well, the, but he's reading about that stuff cause he also had, had access to it. Mm-hmm. So not only could he confess to something, he could actually look up certain crimes and then when they start doing the trauma therapy, Oh, by the way, guess what? I just realized that this, this crime that I was looking up last week on the internet that you weren't monitoring. Yeah, I did that one. Right, right. And you're exactly right. He he was reading about, you know, finding these crimes in, in old newspapers and magazines and on the internet. And he was he was getting some details about them and confessing to them. And I think... Yeah, that it, and what they do? Give him a larger room. Give him an extra room. Give him the internet. And I think it's somebody that, that was... This guy's living better than people that do podcasts. That did bad things and found themselves in a situation where they felt that, you know they could manipulate the situation and, and receive reward by falsely confessing to things. Well, let me tell you something right now. So the doctors wanted to believe that they were correct. Yeah. They wanted that, to be like these breakthrough. Right. Uh, we're, do, we're coming up with this, this stuff that's light years past anything you guys are doing. Right. And the law enforcement wanted to believe it. I think part that part, I, I'm not, I'm not putting more blame on them because they're li- trying to listen to doctors, but it's just laziness. You know, if the if it doesn't line up and he's confessing to it, you go, hey, 
dummy. Yeah. This this doesn't line up. You're right. You're right. But it, it does get tough for these investigators that are being pulled aside by the doctor mm-hmm. constantly going, well, just give it a chance. Just give right, it a right. chance. Well, you know, you're, I, you're listening to another trained professional. You you believe their opinion. Yeah. And, and part of it is that they also think they're doing a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like, well, you know, we're going to get justice for this family. And so I, I, I feel for them on that part. Um, but I think at the end of the day, uh, he has a lot of guilt. He has to deal with it. And, and what he said, um, cause what, what is that documentary called? Cause people could check out that documentary if they're the interested. Confessions in of Thomas quick. Yeah. The confessions of Thomas quick that's on Netflix. But what he said at the end, which I thought was pretty interesting. He said, I bear the guilt and will do so, uh, to my grave, uh, towards the victims, families. They listened to me and my voice and my whores in the courtroom. That guilt and dismay is something I will carry until I die. And as he should, it, it offers no relief to any of these families, mm-hmm. but it it gives me some relief to hear that he is remorseful for this. Well, and our thoughts and, and our hearts go out to the families and, and all the people that were affected by one, a tragedy, but then also the, the tragic second coming mm-hmm. of a tragedy because of Thomas quick. Uh, and so, yeah, he, he will have to live with that. And I, I would not be surprised if he did commit a crime, uh, later on in life. Mm-hmm. just want to be, I, I hope not. I hope he's learned his lessons. I hope he's and, and, and dealt he's with some rehabilitated of as well. Well, I've hoped that he's dealt with some of his demons and, and maybe with the support of his family and support of friends that he, he will stay on the right side of the law and uh that wraps up this case which is kind of interesting for us because we've been doing so many two-parters mm-hmm. so uh but we'll be back tomorrow with a little uh, special a special episode 100th episode of true crime garage a little party we'll throw a bit of a party in the garage tomorrow all right do we have a recommended reading for this week we do captain and i picked this one because you know we 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 talked about the thomas quick case Mm -hmm. we see eight eight murder convictions where there's no physical evidence so i wanted to pick a book that was more about physical evidence and this is a great one it's by dr wecht and donna kaufman it's Mm -hmm. called from crime scene to courtroom examining the mysteries behind famous cases interesting If you think that the media has told you everything there is to know about Michael Jackson and Casey Anthony and other famous crimes, then think again. You'll want to check out this page turner from Dr. Wecht and Donna Kaufman. Mm -hmm. Again, that's from crime scene to courtroom, examining the mysteries behind famous cases. And you can pick that up by going to our website, truecrimegarage.com. Click on the recommended page. Check out all of our recommendations there and go through the Amazon banner and pick up those books today. And thanks to all you fine, beautiful people for listening to the show. Congratulations. We're going we're gonna to hit 100 episodes, and then we can quit. We will see all of you fine people tomorrow in the garage for Big Show 100. Until then, it's my last show. Be good, be kind, and don't litter.
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 